Morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. We're continuing with our sermon series through the life of David. We'll probably be in this for two more months, uh, moving to something different in August. This morning we'll be in the second half of chapter 16 of 2 Samuel and, the, and most of chapter 17 of 2 Samuel. And we're looking at the back and forth between two of David's advisors, a former advisor, Ahithophel, and one that's still loyal to David, Hushai. And we'll see how God answers David's desperate prayer for his help. So let me pray for God's help now, and let's turn to the Lord's word. Lord God, it's to you alone that our hearts find shelter and refuge from the trials and storms of this life, from our own struggles with sin, even we who are yours, even we who experience Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift through faith, we still experience the weight of sin in our lives. And so we pray this morning that you would lift up Christ in our midst, that you would, you would persuade us again this morning that your kingdom, Lord Jesus, will not fail in the world and also in our own hearts. That the work you've begun to bring about in the power of your spirit and his presence in our lives, you will complete. So we look to you now and ask that you, Holy Spirit, would lift up Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. I want to introduce you to three people this morning. They're not real people, but I hope that you find in at least one of them something that you can identify with. Marcia is fearful. She's fearful because Satan's influence seems to be advancing unchecked in the world around her. Marcia feels this at work as her biblical perspective is disparaged by diversity, equity, and inclusion seminars that she attends. She feels it for her teenagers who are teased and bullied at school for talking about their faith and hope in Christ. She feels it when she walks into retail stores or watches sports and observes our culture sliding away from faith in Christ, or at least an acknowledgement that God is good. Marcia earnestly loves Jesus, and Marcia genuinely loves her neighbors and colleagues. She does. But fear grips her heart just the same. Fear for her career trajectory. More importantly, fear for her children's faith. God's kingdom appears to be failing in the world. Jeff is discouraged. Jeff's discouraged because he's overwhelmed by his own struggle with sin. He feels like a fraud when he leads, leads his Bible study with his college friends. If they only knew what he'd gotten into the previous week. When Jeff gathers with his church family to worship each Sunday, his guilt nearly crushes him. Jeff earnestly loves Jesus. And he's honestly doing all he knows how to do to follow him. He's desperately praying for help. And still temptations topple him like a wave he wasn't expecting. And God's kingdom seems to be failing to make progress in his own heart. Greg is resentful. Greg's resentful because he's tired of Christians imposing their worldview on others. Greg grew up in a church filled with people he loved, 
But by the time he graduated college, he had had enough. Christians make a public spectacle about a certain set of issues while they struggle in private with many of the same things. Greg thinks he feels happier since he's turned his back on Christ. He gets up in the morning now and all he has to aim at is whatever his heart desires. Greg's generous. He's kind toward everyone. And Greg has grown resentful of the time that he spent distracted by religion. If God exists, and it's a big if in his heart, God will never be faithful to his word. God will not judge sinners like Greg was taught. God's kingdom in Greg's heart seems to be failing in the world. We're walking through the life of David together, and at this point in the story, David has fled from the capital city, Jerusalem. David, though he's the rightful king, has been has had his throne stolen by Absalom, who not only stole the hearts of the people of Israel, he also stole his father's throne. And to make matters worse, David knows that this is all happening because of his own sin. This is all a result of God's punishment of David for what he's done. And so this is David's desperate prayer. As he flees Jerusalem with a small group of friends and family members and advisors and soldiers, he prays this from 2 Samuel 15. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. This trusted advisor has defected to Absalom as well. And David said in 2 Samuel 15, 31, or David prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's his desperate prayer. David's future is hanging on this particular prayer to the Lord. This is what he's desperately holding on to. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And this is the dynamic that sets up the passage this morning. Six scenes that move back and forth between the counsel of Hushai, who's faithful to David, but back in Jerusalem acting as a spy, and Ahithophel, who's betrayed David and now serves Absalom. And the question is, will God answer David's desperate prayer? Will he turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness? Will God's kingdom purposes stand or will they fail? And that's the question I challenge you to engage this morning. Will God's kingdom purposes fail in the world that we live in as the church or in your own heart as a Christian? Will God's kingdom purposes fail? Will the gospel conquer and be victorious in our own lives and in the world? Will he sustain the church in a culture that rejects it? That's what Marcia is wondering. Will God sustain the Christian in the face of such gripping temptations? That's what Jeff's wondering. And will God return and be faithful to his word? Will he keep his promises? Will he reward Christians and judge sinners? That's what Greg's wondering. And here's the truth that we must nail to the mast of our hearts this morning. Despite appearances, despite what we can see with our own eyes, God's kingdom won't fail. So here are the six scenes of the story, and then we'll think together about applications. First, Hushai's shrewd homecoming. Chapter 16, verses 15 to 19. As I said, Hushai is a loyal advisor to David. He tries, when David first flees Jerusalem, he tries to go with him, but David turns him back and says, you'll be more productive to me back in Jerusalem with Absalom. Here's chapter 15, verse 34. David says, Say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king. 
As I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. And then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. David puts his hope in this answered prayer in Hushai's ability to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And Hushai plays his role perfectly. Look at verse 15 of 2 Samuel 16. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his, and no, for whom the Lord and, his pe- and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall Whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Hushai comes into Jerusalem as a spy for David. That's his job. And everything that Hushai, Hushai says to Absalom can be taken two ways. When he comes in and says, long live the king, he's unspecific about which king he's praising. When Absalom questions him, he says, whom the Lord and this people have chosen, him I will serve. Again, he's not specific. And even in the final statement, as I've served your father, I'll serve you. Everything that Hushai says here can be taken two ways. But Absalom seems satisfied and permits Hushai to stay, though we'll see in a moment that he keeps him out of his intimate war council. Second scene, Ahithophel's shameful betrayal, verses 20 to 23 of chapter 16. Absalom just intercepted the pass and then freezes, unsure of what to do next with the ball. He's stolen the throne from David and now he's in Jerusalem and he has no idea what to do next. Absalom may have the throne. He may have the appearance physically of a king, but he does not have the heart or the mind or the will of a king. Look at verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Now, Ahithophel may be highly respected by David previously and by Absalom in his court, but this advice is a shameful betrayal, not just of David, but also to these 10 women. Ahithophel believes that this will quickly solidify Absalom's claim on the throne. There's no returning from this. There's no ability for Absalom and David to reconcile after something this egregious. And so he counsels them to go in to these women that David left to care for the house. And this in turn will strengthen the resolve of the people who have defected with Absalom. This is now a fight to the death. There's no ability to reconcile this thing. You're either with Absalom or you're not. So Ahithophel is saying this is going to strengthen the resolve of the people who are with you. And Absalom agrees and goes into the concubines. And this is yet another horrendous downstream consequence of David's sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. If you go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, when God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin, 
2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 10. Nathan says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now, for me, this is the part of this story that I've struggled with more than any other. It's David who sinned, and I've been asking the question since Matt preached that chapter, why does God determine that these concubines will also suffer? Why not just David alone? Now, I'm not sure I have a fully satisfying answer to this, honestly, but here's what I've wrestled through over the last month or so. First, the concubines aren't the only people who experience hardship because of David's sin. There's the death of David and Bathsheba's baby. There's Amnon's violation of his half-sister Tamar. There's Absalom's premeditated murder of Amnon for that deed. And now there's Absalom's theft of the throne that David rightly owns. And there's more to come. And in each of these situations, there's a sinner who sins and who is held responsible for their sin. And yet God stands behind the situation, ordaining that it will be part of David's consequence. Here's the second thing. The moon is always round. There's a book written by a pastor in England to his young son as he tries to talk to his son about the death of his younger sister just before his younger sister was born. And the pastor's trying to figure out, how do I communicate to my son what's just happened? And so he takes his son out and they look together at the moon and he asks his son, what shape is the moon? And though it appears in different shapes, the reality is the moon is always round. No matter what time of the month it is, the moon is always round, even if we can't see all of it. And he says to his son, in the same way, God is always good. Life circumstances, things we read about in his word, we may wonder and question, honestly, not arrogantly, humbly, God, I don't understand this thing. The moon is always round. God is always good. In Psalm 145, verse 17, we read that the Lord is righteous in all his ways, and he is kind in all his works. This is always true. We may look at a circumstance in our lives and not understand how it's true. We may read the Bible and not understand how it's true. We may not understand how God can do X and still be just and righteous and good. And it's in those moments that we, that humble lament is the pathway for us. We honestly grieve the brokenness and we trust God's wisdom and his goodness. The reality is God is always doing a hundred things in our lives and we may only see a couple of them. And we know that God is at work in the lives of these women and that God is good, just like the moon is always round. Here's the third thing. And I haven't fully made the connection here, but this, these won't be the last people to suffer for another person's sin. 
I think there's something to the substitutionary death of Jesus for sinners because of sinner's sin that feels relevant to the pain these women experience. That's the second scene. Now the third scene. Ahithophel's failed counsel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Ahithophel knows that to secure the throne from David, Absalom needs to act decisively and quickly. Look at verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will raise up, I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I'll strike down only the king and I will bring all the people who are with him to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, honestly, this plan was probably work. David and his people are discouraged. They are tired. They're refreshing themselves by the Jordan. If Ahithophel goes with 12,000 men that night and overtakes them, he might win. It's a good plan. And that's why Absalom and the elders of Israel agree. Which on a side note, how sad for David that the elders of Israel have so quickly sided with his son. Scene four, Hushai's deceptive strategy, starting in verse five. His objective from David is to defeat the counsel of the revered Ahithophel. So he's asking the question, how do I buy David time so that he can escape? And Hushai is shrewd and tactful in how he differentiates his plan from Ahithophel. Look at verse seven. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Hushai's point is that actually Ahithophel's plan will fail because your father is an expert at war and he will not be camped with the people. So Ahithophel's 12,000 men, they may find the people, but they will not find David because he'll be in a pit or a cave somewhere hiding. And so the plan to kill him and to spare the people will not work. And so Hushai gives an alternative plan beginning in verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. It's going to take more time. As the sand by the sea for, for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has, had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Hushai's plan is to delay by gathering all the people so that they can 
descend upon David like dew descends on the ground. And if they retreat into the city, then we'll have enough people to drag the walls of the city into the valley and we'll defeat David in one striking blow. And besides, Absalom, if you attack David tonight as Ahithophel is telling you and you lose because David and his men are like she-bears robbed of their cubs, completely unpredictable and angry, if you lose that skirmish, all of Israel's hearts will faint and you'll lose the entire objective you're moving toward. Well, the response of Absalom and his war council is an answer to the prayer that David prayed. And the reason that it's an answer to the prayer that David prayed is for the Lord had determined to defeat Ahithophel's council with Hushai's council so that he could do harm to Absalom. The Lord is determined to settle wrongs done to David, just like David prayed when Shimei was cursing him last week. Chapter 16, verse 12. It may be, David says, that the Lord will look upon the wrongs done to me and that the Lord will repay me for the with good for his cursing today. The Lord isn't finished with David. Discipline will resolve with abounding restoration. God's kingdom purposes won't fail. God is at work even in these circumstances. He is sovereignly and wisely fulfilling his purposes. Now Hushai needs to warn David, which is scene five. Chapter 17, verses 15 to 22. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people with you, with him are to be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahamaz were waiting at Enrogal. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell the King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Now, Hushai follows David's instructions from chapter 15 perfectly. Zadok and Abiathar are priests in Israel. They're loyal to David, but like Hushai, David has sent them back into Jerusalem to serve him there. And just as David said, two of their sons, Jonathan and Ahamaz, are outside the city waiting for word from their fathers that they can pass along to David. And so that they're not seen, this female servant is to take the word from the priests to the sons of the priests who will then take word to David. The problem is she's seen leaving the city and Absalom sends his men after her to find these two men that she's going to tell. Now look at verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard. That's probably where the female servant was going. And they went down into the well. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on top of it, and nothing was known of the well. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahamaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now God protects the priest's sons so that God can get word to David, his king. Look at verse 21. And after they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went over and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. 
Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, not one of them was left who had not crossed over the Jordan. God answered David's prayer. The men loyal to him have followed his word and his plan perfectly. And before daybreak, David's party is across the Jordan and on their way to prepare for the battle to come. Hushai has defeated the council of Ahithophel and has bought David the time that he needs. Here's the final scene in verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. The reason that Ahithophel does this isn't obvious. Maybe he fears for his life since his counsel is rejected. Or maybe he's built his identity on his work and feels the rejection of his work as a rejection of himself. Or maybe he senses that this plan will fail that Hushai gave and that the momentum will shift back to David and Ahithophel would rather end his own life than have David end it for him. Now, appearances would suggest that God's purposes were failing in David's life. Unbelievably, his own son stole the hearts of the people of Israel, which as, as you think about it, it's a massive undertaking that Absalom succeeds in. And then he steals the throne himself. And David is on the run experiencing the consequences of his own sin. And his family unit is crumbling before him. But David is depending on a desperate prayer that the Lord would restore him. He waits on God to deal with his enemies like the cursing Shammai, the usurping Absalom, and the betraying Ahithophel. David trusts God to restore him to Jerusalem and more importantly to God's presence if God so desires. David rests quietly on the sovereign purposes, the wisdom, the goodness of God's heart and his power to fulfill his kingdom purposes. Now, Marcia is fearful as she looks at Satan's apparent power in the world around her. She looks at the world around her and it appears to her that God's kingdom is failing in the world. Jeff is discouraged as he buckles under the apparent power of temptation in his own life. He feels like God's kingdom purposes are failing in his own heart. Greg is resentful as he observes the stubbornness of Christians to maintain their apparently foolish convictions in an invisible savior and an invisible kingdom. For different reasons, all three of these individuals are speculating over the future of God's kingdom. When Jesus stands on trial before Pilate, Pilate asks him if he considers himself the king of the Jews. And here's Jesus' response to Pilate in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And I would argue that Jesus' statement makes all the difference for people like Marcia and Jeff and Greg. The kingdom that Jesus references here is an eternal kingdom, a future kingdom, a not yet kingdom, a coming kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, but it's also an already kingdom. It's a kingdom not of this world that is beginning to exist in this world. 
Jesus' kingdom has already broken into time and space and history and creation. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is gathering a people through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. A people is being gathered even now into Jesus' kingdom that is not of this world. This is what Daniel promised, God promised through Daniel in chapter 7. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, his authority is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom that he brought, the kingdom that he will bring doesn't need to unsettle rulers like Caesar and Pilate. That's what Jesus says. You don't have to be worried about this. His kingdom will not overthrow kings and queens yet. That's why Jesus' followers don't fight. That's why they don't fight to keep him from the Jews. Instead, Jesus' people, the church, will be excellent citizens in the countries that they live in and love. They'll work hard. They'll pray for and obey those in authority as, as long as they're not asked to disobey Christ. And while they do, while they live and work and serve as excellent citizens in their country, they will proclaim the hope that they have in Christ to their neighbors. And they'll get on airplanes and they'll cross oceans to proclaim Christ's hope to those who have not yet heard. And while they do, they will willingly suffer, bearing reproach, bearing shame, enduring hardship for the gospel's sake. Believing what Puritan Richard Sibbs said, let us strive for a little while and then we shall be happy forever. Christians can do this because they believe that the invisible kingdom will one day become visible. That despite appearances, God's kingdom will, won't fail. That one day the invisible kingdom will become visible. One day what's quietly treasured will be publicly acknowledged by all. Here's Daniel 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Christ's kingdom will be a public triumph. Every person in creation will acknowledge together that he is Lord. So how do we wait well? How do we wait well for this coming invisible kingdom to become visible? Marcia's fearful, but she doesn't need to be. Satan may appear to be winning. Satan's time will come. Standing with Marcia is the Holy Spirit who guarantees the work of the church in the world. The Holy Spirit who empowers the gospel words and the gospel deeds of the church in order to draw people out of darkness into light. The Holy Spirit who strengthens Christians to live as a joyful, bold city of refuge and hope to the world. Here's Richard Sibbs again. Oh, what a confusion this is to Satan. That he should labor to blow out a poor spark and yet should not be able to quench it. That a grain of mustard seed should be stronger than the gates of hell. 
Marcia's fear expresses itself sometimes as angry disgust toward the world she lives in, and at other times like a temptation to escape. Instead, Marcia, and those of us who can relate to Marcia, can remember that Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but has come into the world and will come again with authority. Let us not look so much at who our enemies are, but who our judge and captain is. Let us not look so much at what, who our enemies are as who our judge and captain is, nor at what our enemies threaten, but at what our judge and captain promises. Or if you prefer, 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Jeff's discouraged, but he doesn't have to be. Sin's hold may appear unrelenting. Sin's time, though, will come. The Spirit has made Jeff new and alive. Jeff is being conformed into the image of Christ. Two more quotes from Sibs. Satan will object to people like Jeff and us. Satan will object, you are a great sinner. We may answer him, Christ is a strong Savior. Jeff has been reconciled to God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not on his own. Jeff's faith rests in Jesus' performance, not his own. And we can rest in Jesus' performance as well. We can confidently rest upon the promise that one day soon we will part ways with sin never to meet again. Greg's resentful, but he doesn't need to be. God's kingdom may appear to fail. God's time will come. Jesus says in Revelation twenty two twelve, 12, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Jesus will be faithful to his word. Here's the last word from Sibs. Man has a day now. Human beings have a day now in which he gets on his bench and usurps a judgment of Christ and his ways. There's a day now for humans to climb upon the bench and usurp, ignore judgments of Christ and all his ways. But God has a day in which he will set everything straight and his judgment shall stand. In the meantime, Christ will rule in the midst of his enemies, even in the midst of our own hearts. Don't make the mistake of ignoring what's obvious. Jesus' kingdom is now invisible, but one day soon it will be visible. The call to you this morning, if you are not fleeing to Christ, is to turn while there's still time to do so. Turn to trust and treasure Jesus. Receive his forgiveness and live. King David presses ahead with faith through dark valleys and intense storms, trusting God's power and goodness 
He's resting in the advance of God's kingdom purposes. He's confident that God will do what God is going to do, and he rests quietly at the feet of God. I don't know what we'll face together in the years ahead. I don't know what suffering or hardship or persecution or trials that God may bring to us, but I do know this. Despite appearances, God's purposes, his kingdom purposes won't fail in the world we live in and in our own hearts as we wrestle against the flesh. Let that strengthen your grip on the gospel. Let that steady your feet. Let that embolden your prayers. Someday soon, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice at your mercy. We rejoice at your plan of redemption. You have not left us as rebels in the world. You've come for us. You love us not because of what we do. You love us because you love us. You love us still not because of the good works we do. You love us because you decided to love us. Our righteousness is not our own. It's in Christ alone. In his name we pray.